We sit at an historic moment in time. The transition to clean energy is as disruptive and game-changing as the very invention of electricity was. This transition could shift the balance of power when it comes to energy from a few wealthy corporate interests into the hands of the people. Or it could solidify current power imbalances where corporations call the shots. In this episode of Mission Transition, we'll explore the options for who generates and who controls our energy in the future. We could leave it up to the big corporations, or we could bring power to the people. Hi, welcome to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond. We're a podcast miniseries produced by Sierra Club BC on Lekwungen Territory. I'm Susan Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon. Hi, Caitlin. Hi, Sue. Well, we all know what a democracy is. It's where the people decide which politicians make decisions about their lives, and then they hold them accountable for those decisions, right? Well, I think it's fair to say that when it comes to energy, we don't live in a democracy. What kinds of energy projects we undertake are often the ones that are proposed by oil and gas interests, uh, and that means a few corporations, typically. And then those projects are approved by governments who often seem to care more about the profit for corporations than they do the interests of the people who are directly affected. We've seen that happen with the tar sands, with the Site C Dam, And you can see it with how the federal government is pushing hard to build the Trans Mountain Pipeline and tankers, and that's despite communities being strongly opposed. And now we're at the point where the very nature of clean energy could really shake things up. It could. So in the first place, you know, solar, wind, and geothermal power can be produced locally at a scale that a community needs, which means that we don't really need those big mega projects that would involve corporate money. Yeah, and we don't need to produce energy for export anymore because that sun is shining, the wind is blowing, tides are rising and falling all over the world. Which means that renewable energy can always be produced very close to the point of consumption, the point where we need it. So that means it could be time for what's called energy democracy. Now, this is a system of policy initiatives that put decisions about how we produce, how we distribute and how we consume energy in the hands of people to be managed at a community level. So what you're talking about is decentralizing control over our energy decisions. And there's all kinds of opportunities and benefits for local people with that kind of an approach. Such as? Well, for example, it often seems that where people are engaged in energy projects in their community, they're learning more about where their energy comes from. Uh, One spinoff of that is that people start thinking about their energy consumption and how much they really need. So local control can lead to some improvements in energy efficiency, which is a big part of the transition to a clean energy economy. But with decentralized control, what energy democracy looks like would likely vary from one jurisdiction to another. And that's a key point because energy democracy isn't about imposing what worked in one community onto another. It's about putting the decision-making power in the hands of people who decide what they value most. Yeah, and we heard about this when we were on Haida Gwaii for their Symposium on Renewable Energy. Uh, we shared that story in episode three of this podcast about how Haida Gwaii is trying to shift from burning diesel for their electricity to being 100% renewable energy. And as part of this transition, they did research about where in the world is this kind of energy democracy happening, where the community is deciding what and where their energy comes from. Mm -hmm. And they found that Denmark is really the leader when it comes to energy democracy, with Germany running a close second. So two Haida community members traveled to Samsu Island, which is an island in Denmark, where the people have been so successful with various sustainability initiatives that they're generating far more electricity than they need. 
Jalen Edenshaw was one of those members who visited Samsu Island. He's on the board of the Suilaweed Sustainability Society on Haida Gwaii. Suilaweed is a grassroots group installing solar panels and trying to figure out ways to get Haida Gwaii to be fully renewable by 2023. So Jalen was very interested in how everyday people were engaged in the changes on Samsu Island. He gave this example of one way they're involved in installing the many windmills on the island. Did was if you can see a windmill from your house, you can buy in 20% into the company, or not into the company, sorry, into the windmills. So, so out of five windmills that you look at, you know, we'd be talking to one of the locals and they'd point at like the fifth windmill and say, we own that one, and they own it as a co-op. They're responsible for maintenance and for for everything. You know, it's not that they own 20% of five; they own that one and you know to take pride in it and. Actually, their costs for maintenance and stuff was lower than the, the company's costs because uh, you know, they learned to cut the costs. It's safe to say that Jalen and Gwaligahart were very inspired by their trip to Denmark. They talked about how Haida Gwaii could be to Canada what Samsu Island is to Denmark. Caitlin, I want you to listen to the then president of the Council of the Haida Nation, Kilklotska Peter Lanton, as he kicked off the Haida Gwaii Symposium on Renewable Energy. You know, harnessing the power that Haida Gwaii can generate is there. We just have to get on the same page about what is the best way to approach it. So I want to leave you with uh, some questions, you know, to to think about over the weekend. You know, what matters in in this decision? So there's so much to consider. You know, there's, of course, the environment, whether it be solar, tidal, wind, biomass, run a river, uh, any other technologies or a combination of all the above. Who should own and benefit from this opportunity? Because we have to be realistic that this is also one of the most important economic projects in modern time. Can we do it on our own in terms of technology, of financing, the operations and maintenance of it? Can we invest in ourselves? You know, should we invest in ourselves? I think we all know the answer to that question. It's an absolutely a resounding yes. I absolutely believe that we can do this as Haida Gwaii together. We have the, have the audacity to think that way. Our predecessors have thought that way. And I think we have to carry on that, you know, that, that great train of thought. Peter's talking about how people on Haida Gwaii are trying to figure out what form of energy will work best for them locally and will fit best with Haida values. These are the questions that any community considering this transition would face. Things like how much electricity do they need? How should it be generated and where? Who pays for it? And also who benefits? Yeah, and when we spoke a little later, Peter gave me a very concrete example of how that plays out. A few years ago, out of nowhere, BC Hydro put out a call for renewable energy projects for Haida Gwaii. Renewable energy is the goal, but as Peter says, it's not the only consideration. The big overarching reality here is that the Haida people, like you know, the Haida Nation, are actually fighting for title to these islands. And what that really means is you know, who, who makes the decisions. So that's something that people don't really see or feel on a daily basis, but that's what we do every day, which is to assert ourselves and fight for the, you know, what we believe is the right to make decisions in our own land. So we, uh, you know, going back probably five years ago, we had this conversation with BC Hydro around, you know, who's really going to drive this decision, and at that time it was them. So we had to deal with that up front is to say, well, that's that's wrong and it's you know fundamentally in itself. So that's an example of how energy democracy may look different on Haida Gwaii than say downtown Vancouver. From the decision-making process to the use of the land to what types of jobs they want to develop, these are all things that every community considers, but the answers may vary from one place to another. So, Sue, this all sounds great, but what's getting in the way of energy democracy in B.C.? 
Let's go back to the Haida Gwaii Symposium for one answer to that. Buck Gross is the head of the council of the Haida Nation Energy Committee. Any idea we come up with has to be approved by BC Hydro and have at least two years of proven technology. We've run into that. Some of these projects, you know, they put out great power, but if you have a spike, big spike in demand, these all these projects have to be able to to respond to that spike. Hydro is always going to be responsible for keeping the lights on. So that, that makes you know, things a little more difficult. I don't think hydro will ever be gone, but we can reduce it. So I guess this might be a good time to go over who makes the decisions when it comes to energy policy in BC. As Buck was saying, the current system is run by BC Hydro for the most part, and in some parts of BC it's run also by Fortis BC. When we talk about energy, there are three aspects. How it's generated, who gets to use it, and how it's transmitted. Now, across Canada, there are various models of ownership, but here in BC, BC Hydro, which is a crown corporation, has the final say in all three areas. It owns most of the generation of electricity, and it buys the rest from private producers. And it says who gets that electricity, and it manages the system of transmission lines or the grid that moves the power from where it's generated to where it's consumed. BC Hydro is a crown corporation, so the provincial government is ultimately responsible for energy policy, but the policies are suggested, they're advised on, and they're managed by BC Hydro. Okay, so the way things stand now, it's up to BC Hydro and the BC government to decide what's best for our communities with only limited direct local input. And we've heard on Haida Gwaii how the community there has different ideas for how to produce energy. Mm -hmm. And it can be similar when the government decides, let's say, that exporting frac gas from northeastern BC is best for the local economy. That happens, and we see billions of dollars subsidizing LNG. We see more billions to build the Site C dam that would provide power to these fracking facilities. And all of this is happening despite local First Nations' opposition to the dam. Right. So it seems that the people who bear the consequences of energy decisions aren't getting a whole lot of say. Um, There's a lot of talk about consulting First Nations and getting consent, but here's where local control over energy generation or this idea of energy democracy could really make a difference. Imagine if you went to local First Nations and said, we'll give you billions of dollars to invest in energy generation. How would you like to spend it? That's the question we put to Caleb Bain. Caleb's a Dene environmental activist and a lawyer who's done a lot of work around LNG issues. On the LNG question, my experience, and this is true of actually all large-scale resource development uh, in Canada and I think even globally, Indigenous poverty is used to manufacture Indigenous consent. And so in the LNG context, because nations understood up and down the pipelines that it was a rubber stamp approval anyways, a lot of people said, well, let's get ours. Like, why why should our poverty persist in the face of multi-billion dollar investment? And I don't, I don't begrudge people who are trying to fight their way out of poverty in the midst of colonization making a hard choice. You know, my family makes that choice. Given the choice, First Nations and Indigenous people will not orient themselves naturally towards non-renewable resource exploitation. Like, 
I would bet if you push like Calvin Heelan and like Eagle Spirit Energy and all the nations that signed on to these deals, if they had a choice between making the same amount of money from solar or LNG, they'd go solar every time. And it's not like solar or wind doesn't have consequences. We can talk about that too. But the problem in my view is that we did present significant options. You know, we look at solar farms, we look at wind despite the consequences for caribou, we look at geothermal despite the fact that it's like technically illegal. But what I hope your listeners understand is that the means by which government and industry create selection bias in the analysis that legitimates these endeavors is the subtle way that they um, predispose the process to a given outcome. It's like uh, it's selecting the parameters by which you look at something to then get to the uh, predefined outcome. And that's been the core issue with the environmental assessment process. So we heard from Caleb a little bit, not just about environmental standards or financial profit, but also what effect energy policy has on the life of a community. And also that you can't disconnect energy policy from the social issues and policies that are keeping people living in poverty. And we'll talk more about that after we take a short break. My name is Mark Worthing. I work as a climate and conservation campaigner at Sierra Club BC. And I work with communities to find their voice in the climate justice struggle. Whether you're an educator or whether you stop pipelines or save forests, it's your story and we need you. The future is here and you're part of it, Um, whether that's signing a petition or help inform our work by joining, become a member, donate, or show up at the office and just say, hey, I've got a new idea for a a way to solve the climate crisis and I'm looking for partners. Um, That's what you can do, little or big, um, from wherever you are. So please join join the movement. You're listening to Mission Transition, Clean Energy and Beyond, a podcast produced by Sierra Club BC about the transition to clean energy. I'm Sue Elrington, along with Caitlin Vernon. Now, before the break, we were talking about how in the past people have supported fossil fuel development as a means to escaping poverty. That's despite understanding the environmental consequences. James Kokola has been working in this area for the BC Government Employees Union. Now, not everyone thinks of the BC GEU union members when they're talking about the transition away from fossil fuels. More often, the focus is on oil and gas workers. But James told me that when any one large group of workers loses their jobs, it affects the whole community, including his members. So his union has been doing a lot of thinking about climate change and what this transition is going to mean for labour. And he says there are a lot of benefits when local communities design their own energy policies. So certainly if we we see some countries when they they move their energy systems to very localized um, energy sources, there are certainly opportunities for uh, local employment. Uh, there's obviously the 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 shift the BC seems to be going through, you're probably not going to, you know, building big dams, all of the jobs are going to be up north. You're probably not going to see a lot of those power jobs in Victoria as a result, right? But in some areas where it's very localized, it's solar or wind farms, you might see some of those uh, employment opportunities go to people in local areas. And those are usually relatively decently paying jobs in a lot of cases. Um, and that's certainly an opportunity for those folks. 
James also says that when communities are given the ability and the resources to plan their energy policies, it's easy to see the benefits. So the benefits, uh, if we do them right, are uh, we get to redesign some of our economies. We get to um, hopefully build a future that people want and people can see. Um, ultimately, if we if we can build the right economies in an energy democracy future, we can build healthy communities. We can build um, ones that are climate stable. Um, from a worker perspective, often the people who are most hit by climate change are those who have the least ability to adapt to it. And it's not going to be um, the people who are financing coal power plants that are going to be hit by it. It's going to be the people who are working in the coal power plants that are going to be hit by it. It's going to be uh, a really, you know, there will be a transition one way or the other. It's either going to be really quick or it's going to be planned. And if it's really quick, those entire communities are going to be wiped out. Right? We want to make sure that if there's going to be a transition of some kind, it's planned, people have resources behind them so that their whole, you know, their families are taken care of, that they they see a future. Um, so the benefit of doing it well is that we get stability. This notion of stability that James is talking about is interesting because you can immediately see the benefit of local electricity production in times of instability, for example, in a natural disaster. We saw this in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria destroyed the power grid completely. People sought out places that had solar power to do everything from charging their phones to something that I hadn't thought about before to charging their medical devices. And that was because that solar power was up and running the next day. That's right. There are a lot of lessons to be learned from that experience in Puerto Rico. They're undergoing what some are calling an energy insurrection to build a more stable energy infrastructure. And it's, it's energy democracy in action. But Sue, Puerto Rico is able to invest in energy democracy thanks to some of the financial support and aid that they got after Hurricane Maria. So how do we pay for communities here in B.C. to be developing their own energy? Because it, it is expensive. Yeah, and you raise a good point. We tend to think that a switch to renewable energy would shift us away from the big corporate funding of energy production now. But Dick Backer says that's not necessarily true. Now, Dick is a businessman who runs the Ottawa Renewable Energy co-op. And when I talked to him recently, he told me switching to renewables won't by itself change big corporate funding. The big uh, capital-based enterprises can own renewable energy. So on its own, renewable energy doesn't change anything, except that renewable energy is going to be more dispersed. So you're not going to build a great big power plant of renewables unless it's a large wind farm. So how then does ownership of energy shift from corporate interests into the hands of communities and more local interests? Well, it's government policy, really. It's an intentional program of incentives and subsidies. You know, local projects, by definition, are going to be smaller projects. They're not insignificant from a funding point of view, but not requiring, I don't know, $17 billion like the Site C Dam or $40 billion like the LNG Canada plant. Right. So part of the solution could look like shifting these billions of dollars that government is currently giving as tax breaks or royalty credits to the oil and gas industry and putting them towards community projects instead. When we were at the symposium on Haida Gwaii, I spoke with Rob Baxter. Rob's with the Vancouver Renewable Energy Cooperative, and he was very interested in what the folks on Haida Gwaii were learning from that Danish example on Samsu Island. Again, the way 
energy democ- or energy has traditionally been owned. It's been owned by the big utilities, big uh, corporations, which unfortunately ends up with uh, power and wealth being concentrated in the hands of a few. Whereas I think if we can get uh, that ownership uh, more uh, spread out, um, then you know it, it creates more um, equality. Um, one of the things that the Haida people have been learning about is what ha- has been done in Europe, where you know over 100,000 people in Denmark are members of re- renewable energy co-ops. So that is another model to look at, where the, the the people become the owners of the renewable energy systems, and you know we can make that really accessible so that they can you know own part of a larger solar array for you know uh, $500, for example. Uh, and then they also receive benefits from that as well. What would be the government responsibility in making the shift to solar and away from fossil fuels with regard to financing of it? Well, you know, right now the governments f- uh, subsidize fossil fuels quite a bit. Um, it would be nice if they would subsidize solar. But I-, I think we're getting to the point where they don't have to. I mean, the governments could certainly help facilitate the financing of it, but uh, I think we, we're, we've gotten to the point that we can actually look at doing it by ourselves, you know, coming together as a community, working together to help finance these projects. So there's a little bit of dysfunctionality with just re- always relying on governments for grants to do these projects. I think we can move beyond that model of government dependence and maybe, you know, we have people in the, the bigger community here in BC coming together with some of these smaller communities to help uh, finance and own these projects. It's great to hear about these alternate forms of financing that are making local energy generation possible. So why don't we see more energy democracy in BC? To understand that, we need to talk about BC Hydro and how we manage electricity now. The transition to clean energy is an evolving thing. And we said at the beginning of the episode that it has the potential to be disruptive, to change some ways of doing things that we've done for decades now. For example... The grid. And the grid is how we all get our electricity. That's right. Right now, BC Hydro owns the grid in BC. It, and in some places, Fortis BC, are the only ones who can legally sell electricity in BC. Although BC Hydro can't stop us from producing our own electricity and using it ourselves, which would be called living off the grid. But if you want to buy power from BC Hydro and you want to put solar panels on your house, you need to sell the electricity you generate to BC Hydro, who will then credit your account for that amount. That's called net metering, and you'll recall we talked about that last season on Mission Transition. Right, so a wealthy community could go it alone. They could figure out what they need for electricity. They could generate it themselves, distribute it amongst their own residents without BC Hydro, and they would need to be totally off the grid in order to do that. And so I guess in theory that kind of decentralization is what energy democracy is all about, although done just by a wealthy community that's not really accessible to everyone. Not only not accessible, it might actually be making things worse and harder for some poorer communities. How's that? Well, let's suppose the wealthier communities go off-grid and generate all of their own power. That leaves communities without the same resources on the grid. But now BC Hydro has to maintain a grid with fewer residents and businesses sharing the cost. So those without a lot of resources end up actually paying more for their energy. Well, that certainly doesn't seem like a very fair approach. And that's why energy democracy needs to be a deliberate set of policies. 
that allow for and encourage that community decision-making. That means we might need to change some of the policies that we've taken for granted until now. And what do you mean by that? Well, for example, peak demand. It's a phrase I'm hearing a lot these days when I talk to people about managing electricity. And it's what Buck Gross was talking about earlier on Haida Gwaii. Caitlin, imagine six o'clock in the evening on the coldest day of the year. That's when the whole family is at home, lights are on in every room, heat's going on in every room as well, supper's underway, ovens, stoves, microwaves going full force, kids are doing homework on computers and devices, and businesses are protecting their products and premises from cold damage by keeping things warm. It's peak demand. Everything's going full throttle. Now, that may only happen one day of the year, if that, but Any power producer has to produce enough power to cover that circumstance as though it were going to happen every day of the year. So then if they're producing excess power most days of the year, the producers either need to store it or sell it. But they can't sell it because if you remember, BC Hydro is the only entity that's able to sell electricity legally in BC. So the grid would need to change from something that primarily takes power from a central source and distributes it all over the province in real time to become an entity that gathers and stores excess electricity from communities and then distributes it on an as-needed basis, maybe only in case of emergency for some communities, maybe continually for others. And Dick Backer from the Ottawa Renewable Energy Cooperative says this means the grid is going to have to be redesigned anyway. Well, the grid will have to be redesigned anyway for renewables because there's going to be many more points of generation. But if you have local ownership, you're going to have local pressure on the politicians to accelerate that decentralization of the grid. Okay, so this also means that BC Hydro would need to be investing in ways to store the excess electricity that's produced in communities. That could be batteries. Some see hydro dams as the solution to storage because it can be released when there's peak demand, which is true. However, this could also be done with smaller projects than large mega dams like Site That makes me think about the tidal energy project that we heard about on Haida Gwaii in the last episode, where the the tidal energy pumps seawater up onto land where it's held in storage. And then when the water flows back down to the ocean, the energy is generated as it runs downhill. Yeah, Caitlin, new technologies are offering new possibilities every day throughout this transition. That's that's one of the reasons to reconsider Site C. Site C is a huge project that's supposed to meet BC's energy demands for the next hundred years. But I've been researching mission transition over the last couple of years, and I've realized that we're in this technological growth spurt. And it's one that could change everything about the way we generate and the way we use our electricity. Site C is going to tie us to this old technology for the next hundred years. Instead of being on the forefront of developing renewable generation and storage options, we're going to be pumping electricity through an antiquated grid while the rest of the world changes. And then I think about forest fires and the potential for natural disasters. And if we're dependent on on energy generation and in just a few centralized locations, our communities are less secure and less resilient. And right now, the B.C. government is reviewing B.C. Hydro. They're looking at it, and I'm going to quote here from the government's website, exploring the global energy sector shift, including emerging trends and changing technology that could transform the way hydro, B.C. Hydro does business. I guess it'll be interesting to see if we can come up with a plan for B.C. Hydro that is able to incorporate new renewable energy technologies 
without tying us to old-fashioned sources of electricity. Yeah, I don't know where the room for Site C is in in really embracing in the new technologies. Um, and as far as I can see in the review, there's no talk at all of more community involvement or energy democracy when it comes to BC Hydro. I guess a commitment to energy democracy would be a big move for the government. It would, but Dick Backen at the Ottawa Renewable Energy Co-op says we've made this type of transition before, and recently. So I used to be in the, tel- in the telecom computer industry, mostly the telecom industry. If you told me when I started in uh, 81 that I would be walking around with a mainframe computer in my pocket, I would have said you're crazy. And the transition that's happening in the power industry is the same transition that happened in the telecommunications industry. He's saying that change is coming anyway, so we should manage it and expect it. What they did on Haida Gwaii with this symposium could be happening in communities all across the province and the country where community members are talking about what's important to them when it comes to where their energy comes from. Yeah, and Dick has some advice for people who want to see energy democracy become a reality. Well, they should be pressing the politicians to give them local control over generation the fact that community ownership of renewables is local money remaining in the community, keeping the profits there, the jobs there, and the electricity. I would say it's important to talk to candidates from all political parties. We're in an election year. Ask our candidates, ask the parties, what are they going to do to help communities transition to more locally generated and clean energy? And we also urge you to let the provincial government know what you think about energy democracy. There will be a chance to comment as part of that review of BC Hydro that I spoke about. And so add your two cents worth or talk to your MLA. And we're going to have a link with details on our website at crclub.bc.ca. And support municipal efforts to build local energy infrastructure. And if you're interested in investing, you could take a look at energy co-ops. This week, I want to thank North Growth Foundation and our listeners for your support of this podcast. You'll find more links, pictures and information about each episode on our website at sierraclub.bc.ca slash podcast. And you can always make a donation to support more podcasts like this while you're there. My thanks to Caitlin Vernon and Kat Zimmer from Sierra Club BC. And thank you for listening. Listening.